0: my job of teaching people is, is to show them how to practice. And if something's not feeling right in the practice, that's what I'm trying to keep them on track with so that they know like how to rest, how to play certain exercises, what to think about. And, and the the goal of it is that at the end of all their practicing, they feel better so that they feel like, wow, now I'm, I can do even more, you know? instead of the practice routine being like they're they're wiped out at the end and feel like they can't do anything. So that's where, I mean, some of that, I mean, that comes from Claude Gordon too that, I mean, the routine shouldn't be like it tears you down. It
1: should make you feel better and, and build you up. This episode contains adult language and adult humor. Since when have trumpet players ever been considered adults? If you are easily offended by these types of conversations, consider switching to the oboe. Welcome to the Trumpet Gurus Hang Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Johnson. My guest for this episode is Jeff Purdle. Jeff, well, he's a systematic kind of guy. As a student of the legendary Claude Gordon, Jeff was taught more than just how to play the trumpet. Jeff absorbed Claude's passion for teaching and his knack for helping students develop a systematic approach to daily practice. Jeff is thoughtful, insightful, and a lifelong learner and he's always willing to help others find a better way so pour yourself a big glass pull up a chair and let the hang begin all right here we are back at the hang and this time i am joined by the one and only jeff purdle jeff Welcome to the show. thanks, jose. i'm I'm pleased to be here and honor that you're interviewing me. Oh, man, this is gonna be great. Uh, I know you've got uh, you've got so much insight and so many stories uh, to share and and it's gonna be hard to kind of get everything condensed into one episode, but uh, we'll do our best here. Uh, but uh, you yeah, before we go any further, I do have to mention, uh you know, one, your room looks great. I, I like all of the, the accoutrement back there. That's really wonderful. But but I have to start out by really complimenting you on your t-shirt. <laughs> I have to tell one. michael that i wore it <laughs> yeah uh so uh michael barkley obviously uh one of the show sponsors uh the, sponsor, the creator of the barkley microphone which i use exclusively here uh and uh, yeah Mike's such a my, he's such a great guy he's he's a fun guy he's he's doing some really good stuff uh, for us trumpet players and uh, uh so this is just a reminder if you haven't gotten your michael uh, barkley or barkley microphone you should really check him out and uh maybe he'll send you a t-shirt which he still hasn't sent me so mike <laughs> When I see you, you're in trouble, dude. So <laughs> Jeff, uh let's just get going on, on, on uh on you a little bit more. Uh you're down in uh Greenville. Yeah, Greenville, South Carolina. Yeah. About
0: about halfway between Charlotte, North Carolina and Atlanta.
1: I uh, know the know the region well. Played there quite a bit during uh, the '80s, uh, down through that corridor. And uh, actually, my my family, my mom and my sister, both moved down to South Carolina. So I, I, I make the the trek down 95 a lot of times to get down there. So, uh, okay, what part of South Carolina? Uh, they're living right outside of uh, Charleston, or not Charleston? Uh, yeah, Charleston.
0: Okay. Yeah, I usually go down to Charleston and Hilton Head for vacation. My girlfriend's daughter is down in Charleston, so we go down there and and also Hilton Head. So I know ninety
1: five. I'm up off of eighty five. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's cool. So how long
0: have you been down in that area? Um, I moved here in nineteen ninety seven.
1: Yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful down there. You know, if you if you've never had the opportunity to uh, to get through that area, man. You, know, you 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 got to do it just just make sure it's it's good weather you know it's no no fun driving around down there when it gets nasty so but uh jeff you're uh you've been doing a whole lot with um yeah I've been seeing a lot a lot of your posts that you've been doing uh in terms of the the use of or finding an efficient practice method and i I really find that fascinating because uh, you know, we, we, practice is something that we all, well, we all should do it. We don't always do it. We don't always do it the, the most uh, beneficial or efficient way. Um, so, you know, what what kind of sparked your passion to look at, at putting together kind of these these uh, individualized packages for people to, excuse me, to help them uh, to find the, the best way for them to, to make improvements?
0: Yeah. Okay. So, um The little YouTube shorts, I decided I was going to do those because a lot of people don't take the time to listen to something that's really long. And I thought it would be something that hopefully if I could state something really clear in under 60 seconds, that would maybe get them interested in more of the things that are on my website and what I'm doing. Um, I studied with Claude Gordon 10 years. And I think one of the things that made his teaching so unique is... just like what you're describing, it was focusing on practice. It's like not equipment, mouthpieces, gadgets, anything like that. It's like the most helpful thing that we can do is know how to practice. And that involves practice routines, method books, how to combine them all together and what you think about what you do when you practice. So that's what I'm trying to do with the one, like usually on Wednesdays, I put one out that answers a question. And then on a Monday, I put one out that tries to summarize a method book and I'm starting with the different method books that I think are probably the most important ones that people should get first. And then as I get through all those, I'm going to go into some of the other ones and, and explain them a little bit more, but it's kind of hard to summarize things in 60 seconds.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that, that is a tough part uh, the, uh, yeah, as the, our intention spans have, have shortened, uh, considerably over our lifetime um you know it, it's we we definitely are, are i remember the way they's called like the mtv uh mentality you know the, the fast cut sort of thing and, and it's gotten even faster than that so now with things like you know TikTok and and uh, instagram uh the the stories and and uh, youtube reels and things like that yeah the you know the need for this kind of really short super digestible content has become required, uh, but, you know, I don't think it, it will never or should never replace, uh, you know, long form content because you can't get into the details. But, uh, you know, if we can get him in the door, then that's we can we can offer them a little bit more. So um, with uh, your experiences, you know, say you studied with Claude for, for 10 years. I mean, how how did you meet him? How did that happen? And, you know, what are, what are some of the, the big lessons that you learned from him?
0: Yeah, I was, and when you mentioned the long the long format content, I'm trying to do that too and post more of that. Um, I I hosted like three brass camps back in 2010, 11, 12. And even though it's like 12 years later, I'm finally getting around to like editing all the videos and, and putting them up. So there's some longer format things on there with some things that I felt um, were maybe a little bit controversial that clarified some things. Like for example, one of, The recent ones I put up was from a doctor, Larry Miller, that's talking about the diaphragm and breathing, and there's a lot of misconceptions and misnomers about it. And he's a medical doctor specializing in cardiovascular surgery, and he was a trumpet player. And he's still alive, but I think he's not in good health right now, but that's like a longer format thing. But on to your question about how I got started with Claude, Um, I'm 54 right now, it's 55 in December, but I remember... I was in middle school and starting trumpet in fourth grade. And there's this older man that I bought a trumpet from and maybe in fifth grade. And he used to go to all my different concerts later, come to later find out he was friends with like Chuck Finley and, and some of these other guys there in LA. And he, he'd tell me about these different things and he'd show up in my concerts. And then one time he gave me this little pamphlet that was about Claude Gordon And it had high notes and pedal tones and stuff. And I looked at it and was like, wow, can anyone do that on the trumpet? And I just like, didn't really do much with that, but I kept it. And then I was a freshman in high school and there was a guy that was a senior. And we both took from the same guy in Bakersfield, California named Charles Brady, who had been this great orchestral trumpet player that played in the national symphony. And for six years, he was principal trumpet and, He'd also recorded with Stravinsky and done some other things that he never told anyone about, but I later found out about, and then he, he had some of the best students there in Bakersfield. And this one guy I kind of looked up to kind of as like an older brother, I was sitting right next to him in an honor band in Kern County honor band. And he told me about Claude Gordon. He was like, Oh man, you got to get these books, get this, 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 and I bought them and I didn't know what to do with them. So we were going along. He graduated, started playing at Bakersfield um, Junior College, which was a couple blocks from my house. And and he said, hey, we need another trumpet player. You want to play in the jazz band? And I was like, that's cool, because my high school didn't have a jazz band and get to play with a bunch of college kids was was pretty awesome. So he told me we did a musical before. I think it was one of my first paying gigs and he was telling me about starting lessons with Claude Gordon and I heard him improve and then we were playing in this jazz band and within about eight or nine months he was improving a lot and and I started thinking man that's pretty cool and then all of a sudden he started getting worse and I was like um I didn't want he was like this really big buffed out dude and I was, didn't want to say anything like condescending kind of to him but I was wondering what are you doing and he was like oh, I stopped with Claude Gordon because I couldn't pop out a double high C after eight months, so it's not doing what I want. But I could hear all this improvement, and he had like a G that was like huge and better than most trump- professional trumpet players. And I knew like whatever he was doing was working, and whatever he's doing now is not. So I had, around that time, I also had an accident. Where I broke off my my front tooth that had to be crowned and I went through all this crazy stuff where I was trying different mouthpieces and my playing was getting worse and I was kind of at my wits end I didn't know what to do and I begged my mom my my dad had already passed away at that time. I had older parents that adopted me when they were like 55 and so my dad died my freshman year in high school and so my mom, said, you know, do you really think you should, you think this is going to be worth it? And I was like, I think so. And I, she said, you better get something out of it. So I went. And after this brass camp, it was the first time where I heard someone really articulate, like, here's the way it works. Here's why you should do it this way. Here's books you should use to practice. Here's how you can develop to be really great at all these different skills. And also around the same time, the the main reason I wanted to study with him because I'd heard Maynard Ferguson at Disneyland when I was a freshman in high school. And all I'd heard all these guys like Stan Mark playing double Cs. And I thought, man, everyone can play a double C, <laughs> except for me, what's wrong with me? <laughs> How can I do this? And and I was like, there has to be something that I don't know. So that was my whole, re- whole reason was to try to do high notes. And then I went to the camp. And the first thing Claude Gordon wanted me to do, I mean, this is another thing that it was, people had like a waiting, he had a waiting list for maybe two or three years. And I asked, is there any way that I could have private lessons with you? And he said, well, I think I have a time slot. Here's my phone number. Give me a call. And I talked to my mom and she was like, well, I don't know about this. It was, was going to be a lot more money and have to drive about a hundred miles to LA. And so he said, here, I have this time, uh, Monday at five o'clock. I was like, oh, "I get out of school at three 30. And it takes two hours. And he was like, take it or leave it. I, that's all I have. So I was like, let's do it. And my mom worked it out to where I'd get out of school early and we drive to LA. And I mean, I liked getting out of classes because <laughs> I wasn't like the biggest academic <laughs> sort of student, but, um, So then I studied with him and changed several things, um, immediately, like my armature was down pretty low. So I went through that. I changed my single tonguing, my breathing, my hand position. Um, and then what my other teacher before would always tell me my technique was bad, but he wouldn't give me any specific assignments, but with Claude, immediately we were playing all our major scales and, you know, like playing Clark's technical studies and some of my, friends and my band director was like what have you been doing you're you like sound a lot better and you you know your scales now and i was like really and i was really thinking about the high notes i was just following what he was telling me to do but all these other things my playing were getting better and as time went on i realized that that i was starting to play a lot of different things better and could play so much easier and and as I, I, mean, I went to college at Cal State Northridge. I stayed with a guy named Bill Bing, who was like a really, really nice guy. Um, and there were some other people there like Roy Poper and, and a lot of different friends that were playing and different things. And through meeting Claude Gordon and some of his students, I had a lot of connections with some of his students who were playing gigs. And, and it just ended up being a really cool thing. And um, I, I, I taught at his brass camps kind of practical application stuff, demonstrated a few times, and um, then took a pedagogy class with him. That he really only extended the invitation to be in it if he thought that you'd take it long enough that you understood some of the stuff. So I knew, I mean, backing up, I mean, you can, we can talk about more stuff, but I knew probably as early as maybe like second or third grade that I wanted to. Teach privately. Um, I, would, I wanted to play the trumpet in first grade when I saw Doc Severinson. And then I heard Lee Locknain on on the radio playing Saturday in the Park when I was maybe in third grade. My parents didn't want me to do music, but I kept persisting and begging him until in, in fourth grade, I got a trumpet. And I don't think I was a natural. Literally, I could not make a note out of the stupid thing for about a week. <laughs> and my my sisters and my mom and dad grabbed the trumpet and and said, "What's wrong with you? We can make sounds out of it." And I was like, oh, "Really? I want I want to play the trumpet." So I don't think I was natural in any way possible, but I mean, I just kept sticking with it because I wanted to do it so bad. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, there's there's certainly something to be said for that, though. You know, it's the the, coming going through the struggle to do it uh, that makes it that much more enjoyable uh, at least i think um but it, it you know it also sounds like you, you through your process the, the process especially working with claude um you know learning that um like i i would like to say success leaves clues you know that uh that people with that have learned particularly people who have had to had a methodical approach to learning to play. Um, they have discovered some things that that the naturals miss. Uh, so, you know, when as a as a teacher, I mean, um, how, how was the interaction with Claude? I mean, I know that some people. Uh, you know, there, there there's some teachers that are, that are just kind of, you know, super, super cash. And then there are some that are just, you know, really taskmasters, um, you know, where, where was, was his teaching style on, on that kind of spectrum?
0: Yeah, this, um, I was, I would say probably the, the thing that I, that was always the case was every single lesson was super encouraging. Um, but it wasn't like. Filling you with like BS or something, but it was he really believed that hey, if you do it this way and you work on this, you can be a really great player. So, if I came in from like you know, kind of frustrated with some stuff at school or some discouraging things, I knew that I, I'd come out of a lesson, I'd be pumped up to go, Okay, I'm gonna go back and practice, I want to go practice. It was like he. But without like forcing you to do it, it was like exciting. You like wanted to go do all this stuff that he told you to do. Um, he always wore a business suit. I don't I do not do that when I'm teaching, but his thing was like, he'd always wear a coat and a tie and sat at a big desk. And the thing that was pretty cool about him that I kind of, I've had a few teachers in the past that I think are just really master teachers. Um, had a guy in, in martial arts named Ken Nagiyama in in California. It was he like did um they used his studio for like the first two karate kid movies. And him and Claude, they had a knack of just using a few words. Like i would say, okay, do this. Or here just change this a little bit. Like, whoa, what did you just do? You just hardly told me anything and now <laughs> everything's like working better. And so he had a knack for doing that. And he would observe you and and um, this is similar to the way I teach where he would have you start into the new material. He, we wouldn't necessarily go back and review all the stuff that he did in the previous lesson, but he knew that by giving you the next, the new routine and you're going through it, he could tell kind of what you're doing and kind of see what your progress was. And if something needed to be adjusted, he could do that. So he, he made really good, efficient use of the time. Um, he never was really. He was super kind and encouraging, but he, you say like taskmaster, I don't think he, I wouldn't really describe him as that so much because it was like really motivating, but you you better do like what he told you to do. Like for example, um, one of my, one of my college roommates took from him and he didn't do what he was supposed to do. He, he'd like not practice. He'd screw around with mouthpieces all the time because Claude was big on just saying, hey, just play one and do the practice and don't be like getting crazy with changing horns and mouthpieces. You got to like practice. And so my roommate wouldn't do it. And I would usually get early to my lesson. And it's one of the few times where (laughs) he like chewed out the guy and I came into my lesson being like, okay, I better like do what I'm told (laughs) because I don't want to be chewed out for an hour, you know, but, but it really never happened to me. except. About the only time I ever got scolded was um, Claude went through cancer and stopped teaching for maybe like eight or nine months, and there were several of us that basically begged him to come back. And around the same time, with myself, I was I was kind of questioning if I should do music or trumpet or or what with my life because a lot of things I just kind of like, should I really be doing this? What would what I been spending my time on and a couple of my friends took me out to lunch and dinner and like kind of had a talk with me and said, yeah, whether you do this as a career or not, you should, you're, this is kind of like your thing and you're good at it and understand it. And I was like, okay. So I got back with lessons with Claude for some weird reason. I'd like start copying the hand position of this, this guy, Bill Bing. And Claude looked at me and said, what are you doing that for with your thumb? I was like, what? And so for some weird reason, I was bending my thumb where he would teach everyone to like keep their thumb straight. So your hand positions like that and stuff like that. And so he was like, come over here, put a piece of tape on my hand around my knuckle said here, play like that. And then it was like, keep that on your hand and drive back home and then practice later. So I felt like a three hour drive with this tape. So within one day I like broke that habit, but that was like about the only time it, that and one other time I, um, I like to get to his lesson about two and a half, three hours outside of Los Angeles. And I lived in, um, Valencia later, and I would either, I would usually go out through the desert in California and cut through the backside of the mountain up in big, big bear. So I liked it cause I could drive like super fast through the desert. And, it was good. <laughs> and, but, um, once I got to the lesson, I forgot one of my books and he was like, have you been practicing? Why did you forget your book? And I was like, seriously, I know it from memory. I can, he was like, okay. (laughs) He, but he, you had to practice what he told you to do. So, I mean, that maybe, I guess that is a taskmaster, but it never felt like
1: I was being forced to do it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that, that is a sign of a great teacher is, uh, you have that, that mixture of uh, obviously you need to have the knowledge um but it's the ability to communicate it and uh so it's the communication of the information but then it's the motivation because if you don't have the right balance of that you know you can you can put out the best stuff but if you aren't doing it in a way that motivates people uh i and and i even hesitate to use words motivation because motivation is an intrinsic thing um and it's 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 creating the environment or the spark that people can can then use to to find their motivation. Um, you know, so it, it's really, it's finding, it's having all those things together, uh, having expectations uh, and having expectations for your students, having expectations for yourself. You know, all, all these wonderful little ingredients that come into being a, a phenomenal teacher. So, uh, but it's the inspiration, I think, to me that, you know, all the, the great teachers I've had uh, have inspired me, and in, in most of the times, it's not particularly in the technical skill that I'm trying to get from them. It's in some, uh, either some very broad aspect of uh, of you know, like the, their concepts on on life and. And living, uh, or or sometimes it's it's a very uh, succinct thing about some area outside of of their particular craft. So uh, you know, like for with Claude, what were some of the things that you looked at from him, and said, you know, I I would like to model myself after after these portions of his personality or, or his his uh, view of of music and life.
0: Yeah, I mean, like some of the things you're talking about, like um character traits with him he was like super hardworking, determined um and disciplined I mean things like that that I mean in a way that I don't think I've seen very many people ever be this way um like he would not not to like say that everyone had to do this but he would just share with people like for example he went I think like 15 years without missing a day's practice so I was like, man, I wonder if I can do that. So I mean, without being told I need to do that, I'd say, I wonder how long I can go. So I went like three and a half years without missing a single day. And and I mean, I think that I mean that like seeing that sort of thing or seeing that he was so determined and in some ways it in some ways it could have been. I think in some ways it was not necessarily a good thing for him. Like for example, he had cancer in his, in his throat, like lymph nodes and stuff. And he did radiation and he absolutely insisted that he was going to do his brass camp. And I don't know how he pulled it off, but he looked like he was like close to death when he was at this thing. And he was barely making it, but it's like nobody was going to tell him that he couldn't do it. And I mean, he was that kind of guy where if you told him something couldn't be done, he didn't care. He was going to do it. You know, it's like, so whether it's something on the trumpet or, or anything, he would, he he was just that determined. So that's kind of, that's kind of cool. And I think there are people that are in lots of different fields that are like that and, you know, successful people don't, don't um, give up when it's something seems to be an obstacle They're just like either figure out how to make it through or persist or or something like that so that's like some cool things about him um i mean his playing this is kind of a really unusual thing i never actually heard him play one note in a trumpet lesson so over 10 years he never played one single note Um, i heard him demonstrate a few things at some of his brass camps and i heard recordings of him But again, he had like the knack of being able to say things with words or tell you what to do to like make things work better, um, and the assignments and, and knowing what to give you at the right time. Um, and now with my teaching, especially younger students, I'll definitely play with them. And, you know, with my older students, if I need to get them to understand something better, it, it. It's easier to just pick up my trumpet and say, here, do it like this. Here's what it's supposed to sound like or feel like. And here's what I'm talking about. So um, where for me before Claude, the guy that I took from before, all our lessons consisted of was just playing along with him and hearing him play. And he, he sounded musical and beautiful. And he was playing like very correct, but he didn't tell me how to do it. So it was kind of like, it, they were quite different. And I can understand taking from both types of teachers, but I mean, I think that for most people that are not not like a natural, it's the way Claude does it and did it made a lot more sense to me, at least.
1: Well, yeah, I think it's real important uh, to, to find a teacher that meshes with you. Um, uh, There's an old saying, uh, you know, when, uh, when the student's ready, the teacher shall appear. And that you know sometimes we're just not ready to get the information or we're just we're not in the right environment. Uh, and when when we find that teacher who can speak to us in a way that we understand, uh, then that's when the magic can really happen. And um, yeah, I, and I think that that now it could be as, you t- as you're telling your story because, uh, you know, I've, I've gone there with a lot of the people that I've, I've studied with, uh, whether it be music or martial arts or things like that, that I usually had to travel a great distance in order to, to find the people that had the skills that I, that I wanted to learn. Um, but now with the advent of, of technology, uh, of, of uh, streaming technology, now it's so much easier for us to get access to great teachers, uh. But, however, you have to kind of weed through the process because you know any any Joe with a with a, a laptop or you don't even need a laptop anymore. You just use your phone. Uh, can can do lessons, can offer lessons, but not everybody is either a skilled enough in the the pedagogy or b uh, has the the analytical ability to actually communicate the the right steps to a person. Uh so, you know, for someone who's been in this business for a while, uh what are some of the things that, the like the, the advantages you've seen being created by technology and then what are some of the drawbacks and how are you trying to uh create the best the best of both worlds?
0: Yeah, that's that's really good. I mean, I've been doing this online teaching officially since about 2003. Um, but some of the stuff you're talking about makes me think of like when I first started doing it and when more people started doing it, I knew that I didn't want to just be a trumpet teacher on the internet because, I mean, how many people are on the internet and it if all you are is a trumpet teacher on the internet, then it's going to be a race to the bottom with how much you get paid. You'll know, be like, oh, this person charges this. this per- oh, I'll pick the cheapest person. I mean, it's like it's the same thing with like being a musician, like that. There's got to be something that's a little bit different. So, I knew that from taking with Claude and all the different things that I'm I understand about method books and practice routines and showing people how to do all this stuff that I've done, I wanted them to understand that. So, that's why I created my website to begin with. Um, it kind of came about because a friend of mine told me about Trumpet Herald and they were like, Hey, there's a Trumpet Herald forum. This is a long time ago, early two thousands. And that there's, there's a discussion group about Claude Gordon. And even this guy and some other Claude Gordon students were putting stuff up there. and was like, Claude didn't really say that. That's kind of, kind of frustrating that they were saying stuff that was opposite what he said. Like one guy was saying, taking a pencil and squeezing on it. And another guy was saying, playing smaller mouthpieces. Claude would have said that. I was like, no he wouldn't but i don't i didn't want to get on there and like slam on these guys they were sort of my friends you know so it's like instead i put a, a bunch of audio of claude so i could say hey take a listen to this <laughs> and then claude would talk about it and then it was not me saying it but it was claude and hopefully it made more sense and it was coming from someone that was you know like well-known and respected and older um and then I added more content as time went on and tried to clarify and make things so that it would give people different things to think about when they practice. Um, now back to your question about like what sorts of things are, have I noticed that are different? So that that's like a big thing about setting yourself apart as being different. Um, with, with the technology side of things, I, I got into video chat on the internet, probably as early as about 1993 or 1994. Um, I'm really big into like electronics and technology. I was, I've was i been a ham operator since about 1982. So about 40 years I've done that. When I was in about first grade and my friends were wanting to play with Legos. I asked my parents for Christmas for this thing called Electrolab. And it was kind of like little magnetic schematic um like resistors, capacitors, transistors, and you could build build like a an oscillator or a strobe light or an amplifier. I was playing around with that kind of stuff because I just thought that was super cool. And then didn't start playing trumpet till later. And then so when the internet came around, I'd already played around with slow scan TV over ham radio. And knew that, wow, there's a way to like send pictures to people. And I had some friends that had fast scan TV. So they could actually send 30 frames a second to another part of of the area with with a camera. So I thought this is pretty neat. And I knew just the way like the internet and the first modems. I remember playing around with the, when I was in seventh or eighth grade, my math teacher got myself and another guy uh, an account at a local college that Bakersville college. And they had a mainframe computers, like a, a deck digital equipment corporation mainframe. And we'd play around with that. And I figured out how to get a modem to dial in. And it was like all these things that with computers and ham radio and communication and electronics. And then when the, so when the internet came about, I remember going over to my friend's house And thinking, man, man, it was like really cool. And it was nothing. It was like, there was no web. We were hooking into library systems. Like we can communicate to another part of the world. This is going to be cool. And did video chat with this program called See You See Me. And it was kind of really nerdy where it was just like people like waving at each other with a little little black and white camera going, hey, I'm in the Netherlands and I'm in California or whatever. Um, But even before I moved from California to South Carolina, I was living in Los Angeles. My now ex-wife, she was telling me that um, she was like, I'm not moving to Los Angeles. And I was like, well, I can move there and I'll teach on the internet eventually. She thought I like lost my mind, but this was like 1996. I was like, it's gonna happen. And Cause I could see the internet was getting faster. The camera's getting better. The computer's getting better this is going to happen. And so it was about 2003 or four that I started really like dabbling with it. I created a website around that time and a guy who's now he stopped and now he's back again. His name is Sean Hines. He's is from somewhere in Connecticut or Boston. Um, But he was my first student. So it's like my first student is now taken with me again. And uh, so it's like, he sought me out because of Claude Gordon stuff and, and it just kept going. And then, then about 2008 when the market collapsed and all these bad things happened, both my my ex-wife and I um, lost a lot of students. Like um, I think probably I was probably up to about 60 students at that time. And I probably lost about 20 and she probably lost about 20. So we're talking about thousands of dollars, I've lost income a month. And I was like, Oh no. And um, but then the online stuff was already going and started taking off more. And I was like, well, this is pretty cool. It's like, this is actually keeping me afloat. And then more people started thinking it was a real thing. And as time went on, I mean, I've changed my website several times and what I did maybe five or six years ago, but it's been at least five years. I I decided I wanted to make it better um, so that my dream was that I could grab my laptop, my trumpet, and basically go any place in the world and teach. And so I scanned every single, some of it I did myself, some of it I sent to different services, but every single page of every method book, solo text about trumpet, everything. It's like over 50,000 to maybe 60,000 pages of stuff I have in PDF. So I'm just pull it up on my computer, have everything. And so if I'm teaching a student, I've got this giant file cabinet, but I don't even need to pull it up. I'm going to pull it up on my phone or my computer or my iPad. And if a student's off in a foreign country or something, I'll be like, Hey, you need to order this book, but let me send you a page out of it. And I send him a page. So it, that makes it very convenient. And then several years ago when, it, when I did my last revamp on my website, um, you can't see this when you're looking at it without being logged without um, being a student, but there's there's like a private section where you could go create a free account, but my students I click a box and they can like see a section that lists off their assignments. So I've got there I mean I taught, a lot more than this, but I've got about 20,000 assignments. Like all the assignments from 20,000 lessons are in my website for the last 10 or so years. So I can go back in there and like pull up a student that I haven't seen for a while and say, oh, you were last doing this. And we went through this book and we did this and we did these sets of exercises and that. So I can I can keep track of every single student independently and, and know, if they email me a question and say hey i'm practicing this and my routine seems to be making me stiff i pull up their assignment look through it and say let's change this a little bit here let me know in a day or two what it's feeling like because i try to like keep that interaction between people so i look at it as like my job of teaching people is is to show them how to practice and if something's not feeling right in the practice that's what I'm trying to keep them on track with so that they know like how to rest, how to play certain exercises, what to think about. And, and the the goal of it is that at the end of all their practicing, they feel better so that they feel like, wow, now I'm, I can do even more, you know, instead of the practice routine being like they're, they're wiped out at the end and feel like they can't do anything. So that's where, I mean, some of that, I mean, that comes from Claude Gordon too, that, I mean, the routine shouldn't be like it tears you down it should make you feel better and, and build you up.
1: That's interesting. Really interesting. Um and so you know like, like when we're talking about the 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 changes in technology uh yeah definitely like I can I can remember dial up and then you know DSL was a big thing and then uh, you know now that we're we're into to fiber optics and things like that and and we're seeing speeds increase. Um there's still uh there's still a difference between being in a room with someone and 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 doing things virtually uh and i and for me because i've taught for years you know face to face with people but uh you know i've done over the past probably eight years or so a lot more virtual work uh, you have to develop a, a different skill set because you can't physically be there. So how can you explain a, a physical concept or an acoustic concept that maybe isn't going to translate as well over, uh, over the Internet as it would in person? So have, have you found that to be true, that where you've had to uh, adjust your methodology a little bit and, and, uh, and, and find new and different ways of, of expressing concepts?
0: right there there's some things where of course, because I physically can't be there, you know, um most of the people now that I teach are virtual, even a few of the people that are local decide to do virtual um I prefer especially if they're younger that they come in person. um I think that that especially when you're younger it's it's harder to teach a younger person. I'm saying like you know like sixth seventh grade or some somewhere around that area be, that age because keeping their focus on you is hard when they're when, unless they're very attentive kid, you know, but often that's not the case, but so that's like probably the hardest thing for me with adults. It's easier. Um, with the physical thing that you're talking about it, I can't play along with students in their lessons. Like my first teacher did, because no matter how good, good the internet is, there's no, there's no, possible way because you got lag time for the signal to get to you and get back to me and if you play with what got to you 15 milliseconds later then it gets back to me 30 milliseconds later and we're no longer together so there's that that's not possible um there is one <clears throat> I don't know if you know about this but there was a there's was a thing called digital musicians network it was a technology that someone tried to do as a plugin for different digital audio workstations like pro tools or logic or whatever that allowed you to synchronize with other people through MIDI time code. And it it sort of worked, but it's still not, it's still not the same, you know, but so as far as like adjusting to teaching online, some of the thing I was mentioning with having the assignment sheets entered in the computer is part of it like when i first started doing it i i used when i first started teaching lessons i'd write my assignments all out by hand um one of the things that makes the gordon like the way he taught when i teach a little bit different is every single thing that i give to a student like i want them to know start with this your breathing exercises do this book these pages this book this book this book it's all written down so there's no guesswork of just randomly going through stuff because having the routine to be consistent, gives you a way to like know you're practicing a consistent way. I'm making little tweaks on it each week. And then it's, you'll understand what made you play better. So when I was first doing it handwritten, it's like, I can't handwrite it and like send it to someone. So I first used a database program and I'd send a a PDF page of that. And then now it's built into my site to do that. So that had to change. the PDFs of the book was something that, that had to change because that way I didn't have to wait for them to get the book. I could immediately get them on the exercises. Um, <clears throat> camera angle and lighting and stuff like that. You know, Usually like in the first lesson with people I'll say, okay, I'll, like I personally will tell people like stand so I can see you from your left side so I can see their hand position the way I wanna see, see their from their waist to their head. And that way, I'm able to look at their body exactly what I want to see all the time. And then, when they're sometimes a guy, again, adjust the volume because when they're playing along and they do something wrong, I'll be like, stop, <laughs> let's fix it. I don't want them to just keep going. I'll be like, okay, right here, let's like change this. So, I mean, that's where I'm probably more, more like, you know, like pre blunt and direct say stop this right here let's do it this other way um but as far as playing along or playing a duet or something like that that that's something that's that's limiting but for my my way of teaching that that doesn't really pose a problem i think for some people it would um my ex-wife is a oboe player and she tried tried teaching online with with some of that before and i helped her out to try to you know we were married and stuff and even you know, trying to tell her how to, how to do some stuff, but with an instrument like oboe, I mean, you can't go grab someone's reed and like, take your knife out and adjust it when you're not physically there. And you can't like grab their instrument and look at it to see if you need to adjust it. So sometimes if I have a student where I think something's messed up with their horn, that's a little bit different. because they I'll be like, okay, show me what's going on where if they're in person, I'd be able to say, hold on, let me play on. Oh, there's something wrong with it. So that's, that's kind of a, that's kind of a limiting thing with that. But for the most part, I can kind of hear and figure that out. And then it, it it becomes a little bit different because I can't physically like touch their horn or stuff or, you know.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it, to me, it, it's an interesting challenge. I mean, I like challenges. So it's, uh, um, yeah, it, it's kind of like the the, the thing that, that Einstein, the quote Einstein had, uh, you know, if you can't, if you can't explain something, uh, this, uh, if you can't explain a, a concept, uh, simply that means you don't understand it well enough. So I, I think to me, that's always been, that becomes a challenge is like, how can I, improve my ability to understand things so that I can explain it to anybody. Uh, so uh, I think that, that working around the barriers of technology, uh, you know, there's certainly, it's a it's a, it's a give and take. So there, it's given us the ability to have access to uh, more people. Uh, it gives us uh, that real-time access. Uh, but, you know, there, there's certainly some drawbacks to it. So it's how do, how do we work with it? And uh, how do we make you know work to with with it to uh, not only improve the skills of the of our students, but how do we use it to improve our teaching skills? So, I just like that idea. I do want to ask you this: so, um, you know, as as a teacher and someone, especially someone who, uh, the your unique selling proposition, uh, as it were, is your ability to help people to develop, uh. Sustainable routines that uh, will, will give them the the market results that they're looking for. So, um, with your years of practice as a teacher, uh, what are the maybe the top three things that you see as being uh, the the areas that need to be addressed the most frequently? Um, I mean, is like Clyde would always stress like
0: breathing and what he would call wind power. So I think that a lot of people's problems come back to that, whether it's their posture, where they're standing and they're they're letting their chest collapse when they're playing and they're not supporting and and having good posture and taking a big breath when they're playing, um, knowing how to how to like play and feel where the idea of like feeling how your trumpet um interacts with you with the wind power and the tongue level um so that usually with most most all my students one of the things that i think is a pretty dramatic change that i would say probably at least 90 percent of them would notice this after the first three months is that how easier how much easier things can be once you kind of get the the idea of coordinating your wind power and your tongue level Um, most people don't practice flexibility studies that much or the way they should. And they kind of miss some of the, the benefit of how that could help their playing. And so I think getting them to know how to to work on those exercises and, and the feel that they're going for and what to think about when they're doing it can make it to where they discover, wow, this can actually be easier. And I kind of look at it as if, Someone might be coming to me for lessons for improving their endurance or their range or their power or control or whatever, and I look at those things as byproducts of playing easier, and if you can learn how to play easier, those other things will happen. You don't have to worry about whatever high note you're getting to, but most trumpet players get crazy about that and think like, oh, I want to be able to play higher. It's like, forget about messing with mouthpieces or other stuff, just play these exercises a certain way and let it change you over time. And then as that starts working, then I'm, then they kind of grasp like what the practicing and the routines have actually done for them. And then it, then they see like, wow, okay, now I want to practice more because it's, it's done something, you know, that's, I mean, I hope that, I hope that makes sense. Um, I don't know if that answered your question really good or not.
1: Yeah, well, it, 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 it's your answer, so I like it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, and, and you've talked about you know utilizing, uh, you yeah, know, helping people to, to utilize the different method books that are out there. Uh, and I mean, there there's certainly no shortage of method books. Uh, and um, I think that it's it's kind of interesting, like you know, especially because your relationship with Claude. Um, And as you were saying about, like, the with the Trumpet Herald and stuff, that it's very easy to misinterpret uh, what the author had to say. Uh, And no matter how clearly we think we're being in our explanations, there's always this room for interpretation. And uh, that's why sometimes it's it's so good to go, if you can't go directly to the source themselves, if they're no longer with us, it's, it's finding the most... Uh, knowledgeable or, you know, experienced or, or, or uh, uh person who, who has the, the deepest understanding of those concepts. Um, but, uh, you know, so there are a lot of, there's a lot of these method books that are out there and people don't understand how to actually utilize them or how to make them a part of their, their day-to-day practice. So, uh, you know, so from... Just you know, throwing this out to you, if you had to say, hey, these are these are uh, my top five, you know, of the, the standard classic books, these are the if you if you only have five books in your library, these should be the ones that you have.
0: Yeah, I have five. <laughs> five, five. <laughs> five. Yeah, let's see, if I had a choice of five, like if you were to put me on a desert island, I'd probably pick um Saint maybe Clark's technical studies, but I've got it memorized, so <laughs> I don't need it. Um, maybe some sort of flexibility book like colin Iron, Smith. So maybe one of those. And the Clark Gordon Systematic Approach Book has range study stuff in it. I mean, those those are all physical things. or a lot of physical development, but the Arbond and St. Chacom have music in them too. So I'd probably say that, but I mean, when I'm telling students to like, Books to get and telling people things to get. I try to say get every possible flexibility book that you can find because they're all kind of working on the same thing with tongue level, but they're interesting and they give you different challenges in different ways. So if I were to list those off, it'd be like um, Walter Smith Lift Flexibilities, Earl Irons 27 Groups of Exercises, By Lynn, um, Charles Cullen Advanced Lift Flexibilities, Charles Cullen 100 Original Warm Ups um, I mean, Schlossberg, um, Del Stegers, which I don't think is in print anymore. I mean, and mean, there's just a bunch of different books like that. And I would say like, get all those. So you can get, of course, get Arvin St. Chacombe and Clark's technical studies. And I mean, so, and then the Claude Warden stuff with the range, the systematic approach book, um, it has range studies in it, but the point that kind of made the book unique when it first came out was showing people how to, combine other books as a routine, but, um, but the range studies are a lot of people don't work on that kind of stuff where you go down as low as you can go and then go up as high as you can go. And it's kind of like you do that once a day and it'll expand what you can do on the trumpet. So, but you can do that with all sorts of things with our, I mean, cause all it is is scales and arpeggios and they're, the book is kind of set up in a very systematic way where you start with a one octave arpeggio, then a two octave, then all these other different things that gradually progress through the book yeah. All
1: right so i, mean, I you know it, i definitely was already going to assume that that when you started naming off books you're definitely going to say Arvin, you're going to definitely say clark you yeah. know because those are the standards i mean that that those those are the the classics but you know th- there's a lot of new stuff that's coming out so uh out of some of the the newer method books and pedagogy books have come out are there any that kind of stick out in your your head as being like yeah these, these these are some really kind of cool and new approaches to things and and uh that you would maybe recommend people checking out
0: yeah i mean the reason why i mentioned arvin and a lot of people are not using saint now and then i just have a student that redid if anyone's getting the international trumpet guild he did a really cool article that that um in the last journal or so that presented some history behind saint tricom and i think a lot of people are missing how significant saint tricom is or was and um he also has got a book that's going to come out in about september that's going to be kind of a, a like a a summary and kind of a guide of how to like get get the best out of St. Chacombe. It's like, he kind of put it together through stuff we did with lessons and then expanded some stuff to explain it better. And then filled in some of the history. Um, As far as more recent books that have come out, it's like I played through the, you know, the Alan Vizzuti books are kind of fun. I played through those and Scott Belk has, has his, his flexibility book that that's kind of neat to play through. It's different. Um, There's, Uh I'm trying to I mean I I look at a lot of different books. There's so many. It's like there's all the like all the French books, like with Ellen Claude Gordon, it's like Charlie and Beach and Claudemir and Maxime Alphonse, and there's just so much stuff to get through. I mean, I'm always looking for more stuff. So um and I think kind of what taken from Claude gave gave everyone was kind of a framework to like understand everything, and then you could go apply it and work through other materials so if someone asks me oh show me the Claude gordon routine like there is no claw gordon routine it does there's like ideas and a thought process and a framework to it but if some people say oh i mean i don't know because they didn't take from bill adam but some people say they're going to play the bill adam routine i don't know there there was nothing like that with Claude gordon where you did a Claude gordon routine it was like now we're working through Arbonne. So like in the course of the 10 years I started with Claude Gordon, I went all the way through Arbonne, all the way through St. John. Aaron Harris, Advanced Studies. That book is awesome. I don't know that many people are using that much it, if you know that book, but it's great. Um, it's kind of, um, I think it would kind of fit along well with, you know, the Walter Smith Top Tones book. It's there are just so many great books like that. And I think, having, uh, the thought process to go through them is, is the bigger point. Um, years ago, I used to have an e-commerce section on my website where I would sell all these different books and I was set up to be a, a retailer for, um, Girlfisher and Colin and Hal Leonard and a bunch of different things. So I'd sell all the books that I thought were really cool. And there was a guy that his dad contacted me and said, Hey, I want to go these books. He bought like hundreds of dollars worth of books for me. And I was like, can your son like take some lessons with me? Cause it's like, he was buying just a boatload of books. I'm like, it's just like throwing all this stuff at you, but not knowing how to go through it. And I think knowing how to go through it is the more important thing because like when I've taught a, a couple colleges before, I would tell some of the students when they were freshmen, I was like, look, we're not going to be able to get through the entire St. Chacombe book when you're taking from me, because it'll probably take about six years. So you'll be out of college. But if I can show you how to like think through this, I'm hoping that you will like keep going with this later. So you understand kind of how to systematically work through things. What I think happens with people when they're practicing those with trumpet players who get too impatient and they think like, Oh, I'm going to skip to the hard stuff at the middle or the end. And they don't realize that all the stuff preceding that is preparing them. And that it's showing the thought process of Arvin or St. Chacombe or whoever it is to like take that person's knowledge and make it part of you. So if you can learn how to like do that, um, it, it'll really help you. Um, one other thing you made me think about earlier was um, you were mentioning about people reading books and stuff like that. I think... Another significant thing with Claude Gordon was getting people to understand the book in context and not just playing the notes in the book, but he wanted you to read everything that was in the book and think about it. Because um, sometimes people never read what's written in the book. And not that you'll agree with all of it, but a lot of it, like Armin and St. Jacome, had a, a lot of stuff that I think completely lines up with Claude Gordon but people just not, not notice it's there, you know, like I'll, I'll throw out one thing. That's kind of, kind of funny in the, in the front part of the Arvin book, he says, he, he basically says, don't think that you're making the sound with the, with your lips buzzing in the cup and the mouthpiece. Some people think it works that way, but it doesn't. I'm paraphrasing it, but it's like, there it is right in the (laughs) Arvin book. He was saying, don't, don't worry about buzzing your mouthpiece, which, was kind of a Claude Gordon thing, but a lot of people just glance past it. Or in Arbin, he also mentions that your tongue moves in a retrograde motion, which is kind of more in line of what Claude Gordon and Herbert L. Clark taught with K-tongue modified, which is this way of single tonguing where your hip of your tongue is sitting around the top edge of your bottom teeth and your tongue is doing that as opposed to up and down like that. Um, but little details like that can change your playing in a big way. So, Sometimes it's like right there in the book, like I remember reading the a little bit of, um, Herbert L. Clark's characteristic studies, and just seeing that going. Mm, okay, and this went on. Didn't even get it, but it's like had I pondered it a little bit, maybe I would have like thought about practicing and thinking about that better. You know.
1: Yeah, well, it, it, I believe that. Um, yeah, there, there's there's so much information out there so many different perspectives on on how we do things why we do things um i don't think any one person can corners the market on knowledge and uh you know if, if your goal is to make improvement uh, improvement is generally accomplished by incremental steps it's it's small things and there's a cumulative effect that's when we see the big improvement but that big improvement is created by these these small incremental steps along the way and that all of these different books uh you know the 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 perspective of each of the authors was just slightly different and uh you know like you're saying like you know the different flexibilities it's like okay well yeah there's there some things that maybe by Lin, uh the way he approaches a, a specific aspect uh is that's the best way of of gaining that kind of particular skill and then you take like scott's book i mean I, i know scott well uh scott's got a little more more whimsical approach but also his is a little more uh more suited towards particularly commercial players uh so some of the stuff that's going on in there is just really really applicable for for people in the commercial field uh, so it's like, oh, okay, well, one of those studies could really be uh, exceptionally beneficial, maybe more beneficial than the violin, the and conversely, something by might be more you know, uh, beneficial from, than Scott's, depending on your situation. So how do you, I mean, it seems like you as a teacher then have to spend a whole lot of time diving into these books to try and discern where the uh, where the book is coming from and where its unique strengths and, and weaknesses are so that you can best prescribe that as part of someone's uh training curriculum so uh you know how do you find the time to do all that yeah well that, that's where
0: i like have a practice routine for myself and work through these books and usually i wouldn't assign something to a student if i haven't like gone through it in my own personal practice that was, that was kind of a claude gordon thing even though He'd retired from playing, he would always practice his trumpet and go through various aspects of things that he was thinking about creating or giving to students. Um, like, for example, I'm a couple of my students right now, I'm giving them some exercises from this book called um, Get It's a, a, a German, it's a trombone method book, a flexibility book. It's not written in, in treble clef, it's only bass clef. And I've given a few of my students that, and as we've gone through it and I've gone through it, I'm like, hold up, let's change the order of these things. Let's add some other things in there. Cause I'm always thinking about how to make it more systematic to where it's not just plowing through the book, but maybe there's a way to like fill in some gaps. Um, there's a, a little short video I put up like uh, several weeks or months ago. There's a book that Claude Gordon used to use called I never knew it came from this book. It's called um, how brass players do it by a guy named John Ridgen. And I was teaching this student from England and he recognized the exercises. And he was like, wait, I think I know where this came from. So he pulled the book out and said, here it is. And I was like, I never saw the book because Claude Gordon literally did cut and paste and like stuck them on a piece of paper. And then he hand wrote some other exercises to fill in the gaps to make it more, more systematic or progressive. And so I'm always thinking, how, how can I make that better? So it might be making it progressive with the revising the order that I go through it or adding more keys or different articulations or combining other material with it. Um and I always feel like that's one of the things that makes teaching fun, because I always feel like I'm thinking of new ways to like say, okay, I'm gonna do this and this and combine this in here and and weave these things all together in a way that I feel is like progressive, you know? Um, and to answer your question, like, or kind of go back to what what you're saying about, um, Scott's book, um, there's so many different books like that. I kind of look at it as the goal is to be overall really versatile. So it doesn't matter if you're playing commercial music, jazz classical hip-hop, big band, whatever you can think of, just be a good trumpet player. And I kind of look at it as that as like the overall thing because like Claude was not, he was not like a jazzer and he didn't play classical music that, I mean, he was kind of a studio musician and his big band stuff, if you listen to it, it kind of sounded like Herbert L. Clark meets big band. And it was like, maybe not the thing I'd want to listen to very much, but you could tell it was really skillful. And overall, he was like a really skillful trumpet player. So I look at it as, I kind of think of it as years ago, I had a, I I used to work out, go to the gym. (laughs) I need to do that again, but I had a really good trainer, and the guy would um, always give me. I liked it because I'd go and we'd we'd meet and give me an assignment for about a week or two, and then it would keep progressing, keep progressing, and then we then at a certain point. I wouldn't learn, I wouldn't lose weight. I wouldn't gain more strength. And I kind of hit like a plateau and then he'd switch it up into a new set of things. And it was like, Whoa, there's something else to do. And then as that, I mastered that. I could probably go back and do the other thing better. So I kind of think that trumpet playing is and practicing is like that, where you're working through a book, you're gaining all this stuff out of it. And then you, then you stay on it long enough for it to change you. Then you move to another book and work through that and then another one. And then you might circle back around and go back through the book again and be like, "Whoa, I got something new out of this from that. And now I'm like in a different place. So it's like, there's always ways to pull stuff out of it where if all we ever did was practice the same thing all the time, it it would be just like going to the gym and working out the same exact exercise all the time. You just like not get anywhere after a while. So it's like, that's why it's gotta be like working through things. And and it makes it challenging because I mean it makes it fun for me as a teacher and practicing. And I mean, I it's it's one of the things where I feel like that's why I know that I'm kind of called or meant to teach. I mean, I feel like teaching is the thing that makes me more excited than even playing. Even though I like to practice my trumpet, it's like teaching it is is exciting.
1: Yeah well i am with you there i mean I, I i love to learn and i love to teach so those are those are two of the most important things to me and i think it's it that's for me uh that's the way i learned the best is uh you know to to take something to try and break it down and then try to figure out how to explain it to somebody else because like you know, talking about that einstein quote the the deeper i dive into it and the clearer my ability to explain it is then the, that means i'm understanding it on a new level and so uh i i really um I really admire people who are great teachers, and I just—I think everybody should teach in some respect uh, if, if they're trying to really improve their skills. Uh, you know, it, it, it will open your eyes. If well, if you're being humble and honest, it will open your eyes. Yeah, but, definitely. All right. Well, we have got a uh, a few standard segments that we need to get to on uh on the show today before we can wrap up and the first one is brought to us by none other than mr michael barkley of Barkley microphones that's right folks uh our our favorite the mic the mic of choice for the trumpet guru and its guests and uh, i think uh i think even as uh as i'm speaking that uh <laughs> Mr. Jeff is is grabbing his Barkley microphone uh, out of his his case there. Yeah, two of
0: them. So here's a red one.
1: <laughs> uh yes, the the new uh, color models. I've got a purple one on order. So uh, yes, it, it, I'm telling you. It, in all in all honesty mike's stuff is the shit so uh you you definitely need to check it out and if you're taking virtual lessons you need to have a good microphone so even if you're not doing studio work you should have a good microphone if you're gonna do those virtual lessons because it's gonna help your teacher to hear you better so there you go another good reason to buy a microphone but uh this uh, segment is uh called sound off and sound off is about sound and uh what i'd kind of like to to get it is your thought on uh, the approach to generating that beautiful trumpet sound now, obviously the everybody's got uh you know different equipment they're working with be it the physical equipment of the horn or the the real physical equipment of their chops but you know how do you go about uh addressing sound issues with your students
0: are you talking about what equipment do i use or or that's, just the concept
1: how, how do you how do you help them get the concepts of sound
0: okay so there It's hard to describe sound because some people say that bright, bright or dark or whatever. And I remember asking this question to Claude Gordon before, like, what's a good sound? Because when I was in school, people would say, oh, this person's too bright or they're too dark. And his definition was a, a free vibration. So that's kind of what I'm looking for first is like the sound is like free. It's not like tight or restricted and then the other word that I, I like to describe is resonant um, because um, being that I've played around with ham radio and everything for so long, one of the things that immediately came to my mind is that when you have a transmitter and an antenna, the antenna has a resonant frequency and your transmitter is transmitting. And if you're not on the same exact resonant frequency, you get this thing called SWR, which is some of the powers coming back down your, your feed line or your coax, and it's not being transmitted off your antenna. So in the same sort of way, when people practice the trumpet, if they're not playing on what some people call centered on the pitch, or I prefer to use the word resonant, if you're not right on the resonant frequency, you're kind of working against the trumpet. So you can kind of hear that where the sound is, is full and, and clear and has overtones in it. But if you're flat in relation to that resonant frequency, it'll be kind of like dull and kind of dead sounding and kind of a little spread. Or if you're sharp in relation to that, it's kind of a little pinched and it's different. So I'm wanting them to hear and feel that when they're practicing, you know, like the flexibility studies, I'm trying to get them to experience that and feel that. And and also when they're doing intervals and arpeggios and scales where they can really hear where they are like intonation wise and intervals and the where they're centering in on pitch. So I feel that that is a physical thing that results in the sound being the right way. So I look at the two, that's like a important ingredient Now someone might be playing a different mouthpiece or a different trumpet and their tone might be a little bit different based on their equipment. But if they have that quality to it, I feel like that's, what I want them to get. And then you might have the preference to get a darker sound and someone else might want to have a brighter sound and they can both be great because it's like, that's your desire and your personality coming out and what you want to sound like with your playing. So that's kind of my concept of, of sound is more the general, like the freeness and the resonance and that kind of thing. And then the, variation in, in bright or dark or, or that all that kind of stuff is is more on the personal side you know
1: yeah. i like it. i, I never uh, really heard anybody use that uh, free vibration uh phrase before so i, I like that the different way of thinking about it so very good all right let's move on to the next segment next segment is called geared up And Gear It Up is brought to us by Venture Mount Pieces, venture where technology design and craftsmanship intersect. Use the code TRUMPETGURUS21 to get 10% off your order. Uh, And this is, you know, about gear. We can't uh, talk trumpet without talking gear. And, uh, yeah, everybody's got different concepts on gear, as you were just uh, alluding to a few moments ago. You know, the, you know, People might want to change their gear uh, based on how to get that specific kind of uh, color to their sound that they're they're looking for. But uh, as as a teacher, um, how do you approach the subject of gear? Uh, particularly, uh, being you know having so many virtual students, where yeah you, know, you you can't walk, you can't be like the old teacher who you know walk into the store with their their student or you know have the bring in a bunch of student uh, horns into the studio and have them try it out. Uh, so so how do you suggest people go about the process of of uh, fine tuning their their gear? So teaching what I what
0: I usually do, I definitely address gear, but. I first want to make sure that they're practicing and all that kind of stuff is happening first. And then um, I usually ask them questions about what they're playing, if they change, how long they've been playing on certain things, what sorts of playing they do. And then as they're playing through parts of the routine, I can kind of hear certain things. Like, for example, if the equipment sounds like it's backing up on them and I can tell that they're doing everything pretty, pretty well and pretty correctly, then I might suggest like, hey, what are you planning on? You might wanna like consider opening up the throat or the back bore, or changing some things on it. But I'm very um, careful to like not get them off into a tangent of trying stuff, trying equipment changes because I want them to keep consistency. So I kind of look at it as like, if you're gonna do something like that, really approach it kind of in a, in like a scientific way where you keep your routine exactly the same way for a while to where you feel like you're really super stable and then say, okay, I've got the mouthpiece that I've been playing on for a long time. Now I'm going to make one change to that or change like a couple thing, things, like try a couple changes and then be like, okay, I'm going to play this for a while and get used to it and then make a judgment on it. Where I think when you change equipment, it's, there's that, adjustment period where if you're not really adjusted to it, then you go change to something else. Now you don't know what's causing what, you know? So I kind of look at like, that's important. Now, what I personally play on, I mean, I'm kind of boring. I have not switched mouthpieces since 1984 (laughs) (laughs) or trumpets. I'm like really kind of boring, but I mean, some people would say this is like really not like how could you play lead on it or how could you do whatever? But it's like the CG personal mouthpiece is made by Cancel. It's got, I don't know if you can really tell, it's got like a 20-throat in it, so it's pretty big and it's kind of deep. Wherever I put my finger in it, it's about that deep. And it's more kind of a V shape in there. And the backboard is pretty wide and open in the back. Like if you look at it, it's like what would be called like a Schmidt backbore. So like this way it would taper like this, as opposed to like in a Schilke 14A4A, it kind of tapers like that. This one opens up like that, what some people might call like a orchestral or symphonic backbore. I don't think that it makes it harder. actually feel that once you're used to it, it makes it easier. Um, but again, I don't switch around. So who knows if I switch around all the time, but... Um, that's, that's kind of what I think with equipment. And once people find it, you know, then get back on practicing and, and forget about it. Then it just becomes like, it's, it's your home base and you don't have to think about equipment. So you pick your horn up and it's like, you're thinking about playing instead of what this or that feels like, you know?
1: All right. Well, that is some solid, solid advice. So thank you very much for that input. Um, all right, so we've got one uh, final segment, and uh, this is brought to us by our good friend, uh, Kenny Robinson of Robinson's Remedies. This is the Robinson's Remedy Rapid Fire Around, and uh, this is just a series of questions that uh, kind of bounce all over the place, kind of like, you know, doing pedal tones. Uh, so you're just fluttering along in the wind, and uh, we're just going to see how quickly you can respond to these questions. Are you ready, Jeff? Okay. All right. <laughs> let's do it. First question. Who is the biggest influence on your life that is not a trumpet player? Um, I'm a Christian, so I guess I would say Jesus. All right. Uh, What is your favorite book?
0: Um, If we're talking about, I I like to read the book of
1: Proverbs. Okay. Okay. We'll looks up that answer. All right. What's the worst movie you've ever seen?
0: Oh,
1: Ishtar.
0: Uh, you didn't like Ishtar? No, it's so bad I can't even remember very much of it. But I just remember it was horrible. All
1: right. Uh, if you weren't a trumpet player, what would you want to be?
0: Probably something with computers or, or electronics.
1: All
0: right. Uh what is your favorite drink? I like um, let's see. Oh, what it was it? Um I'm forgetting the brand name. Um I like bourbon, but there's a particular bourbon that is I'm dry. I'm drawing a blank on it. Um double oak. Um Lickford? Yes, yes. Okay yeah so, that's well, my favorite i keep i always go back to that when I go in the store.
1: that's a good one all right uh you uh are going to have a dinner party and you can invite any three living people in the world uh to come and hang out with you for an evening of discussion uh avoiding avoiding close family and friends uh so who who are the three people you'd love to have at your dinner party
0: oh man um I'm friends with Lee Locknane, so I'd probably invite him. Um, And then this would be kind of crazy. Joe Walsh, who I've talked to him before from the Eagles. He's a ham operator. (laughs) He's crazy. And uh, third one, let's see, who would I invite? Um,
1: Hmm. Who else? I don't know, maybe
0: like a... I don't know who else. Um, well, if like, maybe like, well, he's no longer alive. But it'd be cool. Maurice Andre.
1: <laughs> well, that that that's the second part of the question. The second part <laughs> of the question is, you could invite any three people that are no longer with us. Three people from history. Who would you want to have?
0: Um, Maurice Andre, um, Claude Gordon, and Timothy Dockschitzer. Schützer.
1: Mm. Okay, there'd be some good talk there uh next question lacquer plated or raw? I like silver plating all right, what is your favorite quote Um there's this I think it's I don't know if it's
0: like Steve Jobs or if it's if it's um guy. What's his name? Guy Kawasaki, but it was something like "Don't let the bozos grind you down." <laughs> well, there are people that are sometimes really discouraging that try to tell you you can't do something, and just you just got to ignore that. Yeah,
1: there you go. All right, what is your greatest fear? Um, maybe like,
0: I mean, I'm not really afraid of anything, but I think if if I were to lose my mental capacity you know like ability to think i mean i wouldn't like say if i were if i were to get old and lose my ability to to move around or something like that my ability to think i think that would be that would be probably the worst thing for me
1: all right um you could be granted one superpower what would it be
0: maybe Reading people's
1: minds. (laughs) (laughs)
0: It might be a bad thing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) In a whole lot of trouble. (laughs) All right. Uh, What aspect of trumpet playing do you find to be the most overrated?
0: Um,
1: Probably probably
0: like fast technical playing because I feel that it's possible for anyone to do that pretty easily.
1: All right. Uh, And what aspect do you find to be the most underrated?
0: Mm. Flexibility,
1: I guess. All right. Uh, You can go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice about music, what would it be?
0: I feel like when I was younger, I didn't, I was too self-conscious about taking solos and improvising. I wish I would have done that a lot younger. I mean, it wasn't until probably after college that I, that I felt like I was comfortable doing that. And had I just tried more when I was younger, I think it would have been better, you know, and not, not be afraid to mess up or get self-conscious about things.
1: Uh, Now, uh, you're back there, and you're going to give your younger self one piece of advice about life.
0: Probably, um, uh, maybe take even more risks.
1: Uh, yeah, sometimes I just got to let it fly. And uh, our final question for you, Jeff, is what do you want your legacy to be?
0: That the pedagogy stuff from Claude Gordon will help others to know how to use method books and improve their practicing for years or generations in the future. <clears throat> Sorry. Yeah. Uh, well,
1: that. You want me to say that again? um sure <laughs> let, 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 let's go with uh, what do you want your legacy to be Fine. that the
0: pedagogy of quad gordon and the use of all the different method books in a systematic practice routine and how to keep all these books alive would would be something
1: i'm remembered for all right well you're certainly uh taking steps to that daily and uh, certainly appreciate you taking time to, to share some of your insights uh, and you know, well, we'll have links in the, the show notes. So if you want to uh, find out more about Jeff, uh, please uh, hop on over to his uh, webpage. Uh, also check out his uh, YouTube channel, lots of great content on there. And uh, you know, I, I think it's so important, you know, too many people want to know what to practice. Uh, and I think it's, it's more important often to understand how to practice. And, uh, you know, you, you're doing a, a great job of, of giving the the hows and the whats. So uh, thank you very much for your, your contribution to the world of crazy trumpet players. <laughs> Thanks. So, uh Thank you very much for spending time with us on uh, today's episode of The Hang. Uh, If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to drop them uh, to us. And if you have a request for a future topic or guest, please hit me up at thetrumpetgurus at gmail.com, and uh, I'll do my best to help you out. So as always, folks, until next time, peace and slide grease. We out. Thanks for hanging with us today. This podcast is all about creating deeper connections through our mutual love of music and the trumpet life. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast and also like and share this episode with a friend. We want to see The Hang grow for show. Please support our sponsors and consider becoming a personal supporter of this podcast as well. Remember, for less than the price of a bottle of valve oil a month, you can keep this podcast moving smoothly. The Trumpet Guru's Hang is recorded at the Candy Factory, a co-working space and social club located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Jose Johnson is the executive producer. Post-production editing is by Mitch Bowers. Our opening theme song was composed and performed by Lexi Signor, And our closing theme music comes courtesy of The Greatest Funeral Ever. Incidental music is by Ethan Swayze and Jose Johnson. Graphic design by Ann Kirby of The Sweet Corps. The Trumpet Guru's Hang podcast is produced in collaboration with the So Good Lancaster Media Group.